Hello, and welcome back to Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and the Thanos podcast. I'm your host, Allison Dano. And today we have two issues, which, well, well, bit of a theme in them, both about space and cosmic-type stuff going on. And, well, granted, not part of the Marvel Universe, but if you think about characters who can definitely deal with space and cosmic stuff and, you know, who you trust to be there involved in that, well, who else is it? Who else do you think of but Superman? And if we're talking about Superman, well, that means I am talking to Grant from the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast. How you doing? Truth and Justice, Al. Truth and Justice. Did I screw it up? No, you're good. That's how I put it in my phone all the time when I write down what I'm listening to. I'm like, T- 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 I put TG and hey, H. No. <laughs> no, no, no. That's just how I say hi sometimes is truth and justice. Oh, that's right. I just heard you talk about that recently, actually. Yeah. It's a it's a Philip Kennedy Johnson thing that he started putting into his run on action comics beginning with Future State. And I've just kind of adopted it for the show. Yeah, that, that worked perfectly because, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm a little behind on your show. You actually just talked about it about an ep- week, about an episode or two ago for me. Yeah. <laughs> slowly, I, think I remember. A slowly evolving show, yes. Aren't they all? I, I'd like to think so, yes. But so, I, no am, uh, I am thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for being here. It's been a little while, I think. It has been. It's been. We, we talked about death and rebirth, I think. Yeah, Death and Rebirth, and then we were on Jason's show, the Snitcast, talking about Infinity Gauntlet, and then I did a like random selection of books for your show a while back, like a long while back. Oh yes, for the yeah the other for the Friends and Enemies segment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which will be coming back soon enough once I start doing just shows about one issue at a time again. Cool. Looking forward to hearing it. Looking forward to having more people on it again. All right. This episode, we are talking about the minor Thanos slash Warlock appearances in Avengers Annual 14 and Quasar number two. Yes. Grant's not here for Quasar 2. We have Ren Chandler coming back for that, and they're going to be they are going to be in the second half of the show. But Grant's here to talk with us about Avengers Annual 14, which I believe you said was bonkers. It is bonkers. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. <laughs> All right, well, let's not waste any time. Let's talk. Let's see what you have to say about this issue. All right. Do you want me to do like a quick summary of it to start out? Oh, no, no worries. I drop. I put it. I drop in a whole. I drop in a summary of the issue plus creator credits and every and reprints and everything. Gotcha. Okay. Avengers Annual Fourteen, Fifth Column, Writer Roger Stern, Pencils John Byrne, Finishes Kyle Baker, Colors Christy Scheel. Letters, John Workman. Cover art, Kerry Gamble and Kyle Baker. Editor, Mark Grumald. Cover dated 1985. On sale date, July 30th, 1985. With an original cover price of $1.25. You can find this reprinted in Los Vengadores Especiales y Extras, number 3, a 1987 Spanish reprint. Fantastic Four Visionaries, volume 7, trade paperback from 2007. Marvel Masters, The Art of John Byrne, from a 2008 UK reprint. Fantastic Four by John Byrne Omnibus, Volume 2, from 2013. Avengers, The Legacy of Thanos trade paperback, from 2014. Avengers First Fantastic Four trade paperback, from 2020. And digitally, on Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited and other digital comic sites. In Search of Nebula, the Avengers and the Skrulls visit the planet Kral, 
on which scrolls have taken the form of 1930s American gangsters, where they encounter Prince Dizan, the late scroll emperor's brother, until recently an imprisoned exile. He has been freed for his knowledge of those who now menace the scrolls, his one-time fellow rebels, Zabak and Mern, who intend to unleash a powerful secret weapon, the hyperwave bomb. The Avengers ultimately join forces with the Fantastic Four, also on Kral on a separate mission, but neither group can prevent Zabek from firing the dreaded weapon. To everyone's surprise, the bomb only affects the Skrulls, robbing them all of their shape-changing powers. Where am I? The Voyager cast. Who are you? The second in command. What do you want? To cover every iteration of Star Trek. I will not watch Voyager, Enterprise, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, or Discovery. My life is my own. By hook or by crook, you will. I am not a prisoner of your podcast whims. Alright, you want to do the prisoner? Alright then. The Village People, an exploration of the prison. With Paul Spataro, Dave Pascarella, Bill Robinson, and Andrew Lamb. So my first thought is I did not try to remember these various scrawls names. Um, but the one that has the, uh, the prince who has the man in the iron mask vibe, I just called him Philippe. Uh, <laughs> um, the one that was trying to take over the uh, scroll empire, I called him Steve Bannon. And the, uh, the eccentric scientist who goes insane, I ended up just calling Doc Brown. Uh, for the for the point of my personal reference, uh, just in case you know, you wanted me to do a summary, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to remember whatever these guys' names are, but that's what I'm calling them. Um, especially Philippe. Um, I actually had to do a little research, like what what was Leonardo's other character's name in? Oh yeah, Philippe, right, right, right. But yeah, um, and I'd forgotten how goofy a lot of scrolls look before like secret invasion when they were little guys with big heads and, and sometimes like where they almost have like the spirally eyes. That was, that was, that was something. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there were an early Kirby, you know, design, I mean, fantastic four, number two, and a lot of people follow that. So they're generally little guys, big ears, right. You know, basically little green men. Um, the, the sight of, of Sanctuary 2 always kind of cracks me up because it looks like a big H. And then you get Hercules with his big H on his belt and Hercules with his big H chest piece. And I always expect Hercules to go, I'm going to take that ship. That's the that's the Hercules mobile right there. There you go. You know, I didn't think about that until you said it. And now I just realize also it's a. No, no, it's an I. Never mind. It doesn't work as a T. Yeah. Yeah, you could make it an eye. You turn it sideways. Yep. There is no sideways in space. It's two T's put together. <laughs> right. Oh, goodness. I, I wanted to thank you for the serendipity of this, uh, you having me cover this particular episode, because even though I preferred DC from most of the 90s on forward, I was a big Marvel kid in the 80s, and Roger Stern was a big part of that. I really liked his run on Doctor Strange with Dracula and the Montesi formula. I like his, obviously, his run on the Avengers. I'm not a huge Spider-Man fan, but I've always liked the initial Hobgoblin arc. And plus, 
Roger Stern would go on to write action comics during mm-hmm. the 90s. So, and that, you know, all ties in. And of course, I, I've said before on my show, I, I'm not as, even though I like Burns' art, I don't like his writing, especially on Superman, but I appreciate the groundwork that he laid down that let Jurgens and Stern and Simonson and, and, uh, Ordway and Kessel. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking Kessel, but I was like, well, Ordway was first, then Kessel. Um, you know, kind of take and run with to get to the place that I really like in the 90s. And of course, that's my spot, too. Yeah. Right around where they started the triangles where I started reading uh, with the, the crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite. Yeah. It always starts for me with the secret identity reveal. And then after that, you know, we're good to go. And then and then, of course, once we hit the long hair, I'm, I'm home. Yep. Yep. That's my sweet spot, too. Mm hmm. Right in that area, the first early area of the triangle, you know, just before and the early area of the triangle. Yeah, for sure. I honestly, before I looked at the credits, there are panels of because I'm not used to seeing this inker with burn. I'm I, I think I'm used to Joe Rubenstein inking burn from when he was drawing Captain America in the early eighties when Stern was writing. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh I don't know if I'm necessarily familiar with Cattle Baker's work uh, on over his pencils, but you know some of these panels really obviously look like Burn, like this close-up of Captain America, and then some of Hercules. But you know, some of these panels of Star Fox and, and yeah, I wouldn't, I would not have guessed that was Burn. So it was That's that was it. Baker influence. Baker it's, is Baker's an amazing artist. Baker usually, at least the, when he does stuff on his own, for the most part, has a very, much more cartoony type style. Mm-hmm. He did the Plastic Man series for DC that came out like in the 2000s. Oh, right, 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 right. That really, yeah, like you said, really cartoony. Yeah, yeah. Sure. and he also did several like uh, standalone graphic novels for like, not Vertigo DC, but like other imprints they own. Like I think maybe Paradox or something and probably Vertigo too. Mm-hmm. I have one called You Are Here, which I love. Hmm. But yeah, it's very much like in a cartoony style, even though it's a seri- you know, pretty semi-serious story, but it's much more of a cartoony style. I mean, it's drawn almost looking like storyboards for an, a, an adult, and I don't mean adult as in just pornographic. Right. But, but sure. Know, yeah. yeah. Adult cartoon store, mm-hmm. you know, cartoon movie. Right. But I, yeah, it's an interesting mix. Yeah. Um, I like the reminder that the Wasp is in charge of the Avengers during this era. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't forget that because it's, you know, Pretty much one of my favorite era of the Avengers, next to the the bomber jacket lightsaber wielding Black Knight era, <laughs> again of the early nineties. Um, I love that run. Yeah, I love it. <sighs> and what they do with the vision on that run is, is one of my favorite things. But yeah, it's just you know when Cap turns to to the Wasp on page what six of the digital copy, he's like, "Well, Jan, you're in charge." I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's right. She was in charge. How cool!" And she had been for a while, but it was just yeah. like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, yeah I, I love how Stern makes Cap not have a problem that someone else is in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, sometimes the, the most the most problem he has sometimes is remembering to not just jump in. Right. Because he's used to doing stuff like that, going, OK, here's what we do. But right. that's pretty much it. It's not he's like, I should be in charge. Why is somebody else? It's right. Nope. They're in charge. What do you want to do, boss? Yep. Um, and. and- I have I have thoughts about Jim Shooter later that I'm going to get into, but yeah, that was, you know, you were three fourths of the comic industry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but like someone was asking on on Twitter the other day, you know, which do you prefer, Crisis on Infinite Earths or Secret Wars? And I'm like, well, 
I only had one issue of Crisis as a kid. I had almost all the issues of Secret Wars, but looking back on it, I can't stand it because how Jim Shooter wrote people and how he was very dismissive of Jan and killed her and then beat up She-Hulk. And, and uh, yeah, he just kind of relegated. Yeah, Jane. he, he put a lot of characters. Sorry, go on. I apologize. No, I was just saying he just relegated Jan to Magneto's girlfriend. And, uh, yeah, and he had a lot. He did have. I mean, there was there were. I just read that for the full the full thing recently. Mm-hmm. Like I've only read bits and pieces, and there are parts I liked. I liked the I liked the bits of like the lizard and claw being friends, and like how yeah. the how Ben Grimm and Hawkeye beat them up playing patty cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there are parts I like, but then also it's like yeah, like that part, like you just said, or like for instance, his Wolverine was just I want to stab everything. Yeah, death machine. Yeah, yeah. I I, I did like the part where. Uh, um, Absorbing man gets his arm cut off, and he has to experiment with his powers to heal himself. I always that always sticks out in my in my mind. And those mm-hmm. amazing panels by Mike Zach, but but uh, I digress, <laughs> as I often do. Okay, so Nebula is obviously kind of the the MacGuffin of the story, and I have not read a lot of '80s Marvel in a long time. And I know that Nebula had claimed to be Thanos's granddaughter, and obviously. By the time the first Guardians movie came out, Marvel had retconned her into you know, the equivalent of what she was in the movie. Did they ever in the comics um, explicitly say whether she was just a con artist or or delusional or whatever as far as her relationship to Thanos? As far as I can remember reading, it has never been established either way mm. fully Yeah, until – the movie came out, and then and I'm again. I'm going by my memory, but I'm fairly certain it was the move. The comics followed the movie and retconning her to be daughter, you know, raised with Gamora. Right. Because yeah, previously to this, I've, at this time period, Gamora has well, I mean, Gamora's dead now. Yeah. But at this time period, Gamora, you know, before she died, Gamora had no clue who Nebula was. Exactly. Um, she had, you know, no clue. Gamora was raised by herself, really. And, yeah. And um. And yeah, because yeah, like you said, she was dead. She doesn't come back until when, right before Infinity Gauntlet. By then, Nebula is kind of a slush zombie, uh, shuffling around the the space platform. Yes, um, until the end of that series. Yeah, she gets better. Yeah, they do in comics. Yes, absolutely. Um, they got better. Yeah, they got better. So the the scroll- yeah, that's that's the MacGuffin. Yeah, like you said, just a. I mean, we did a recap earlier. That's the MacGuffin is that she just told Star Fox that she is Thanos' granddaughter. And he's like, what? Uh-huh. And now he's all hot on, hot and bothered on chasing her down and catching her because he feels responsible as he did since that's family. Yeah. And it's his, you know, he feels responsible. Yeah, he puts it as his sacred duty to stop her. I'm like, okay. Um, yeah. You, you go. Um, so the, the scrolls that pattern themselves after 1930s America, that's where this story gets really bonkers. That uh, I don't know why they did that, other than maybe Stern and Byrne were fans of that episode of Star Trek where they go to planet like 1930s gangster. I am uh, 80% sure whether it was this planet or one similar has been established already by, I think, Lee and Kirby. Okay. Or somebody in Fantastic Four. Wow. That probably is... in spo- possi- quite possibly inspired by that episode of Star Trek. Right. Um, Which like would I, make sense because be that time frame. Right. Like I love when the 
kind of the space Quinjet goes into the their giant space blimp and like one of the scrawls that looks like a 1930s gangster said, look alive, use mugs. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love the guy in charge looks like Bogart. Yeah, that's really funny. Monica could have done all of this by herself. And she, she correct me if I'm wrong, but she's a, she's a Roger Stern creation, right? She created yes. in Spider-Man annual, right? And Amazing so, Spider-Man Annual 16, yes. Right. So I totally get why she, he wants to put the spotlight on her. I don't blame him for that. She's an amazing character. But there's a whole lot of this era of Avengers where the whole mission is everybody else running around doing stuff. While Monica Rambeau could just pretty much fixes it in the background. Uh, <laughs> That's true. It, it, it's, it's probably similar to some of the issues you could have when you're writing a Just League story. And you're like, okay, how do I make it where Superman does not just solve the problem? Exactly. Um, what can I get Batman to do? Right. He's, he's going he's gonna to discover that the, that the hyper clan are really white Martians. Um, you could throw a batarang. It kind of reminds me of, you ever watched Batman the Animated Series? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the episode Almost Got Him? Um, where the villains are sitting yeah, around the table talking around saying where they almost killed Batman. Yeah. And then the killer croc. Mm-hmm. I threw a rock remember. at him. I don't remember clearly, but yeah. That was his big thing. It, it, it was a big rock. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> it, that's kind of like, Batman, you just throw a batarang. Right. That helps. Um, throw a batarang at dark side. No, I'm, I'm going to talk about this m- more when we get toward the end of the episode. But... You know, I, I, I was going to say, I don't know why Monica didn't have her own solo series in the 80s, but then I remember it was the 80s, and it was under Jim Shooter, and it was during the Comics Code Authority, and a solo series featuring a black woman probably would not have done very well. She, But yeah, she should have yeah. at least had her own mini in the 80s. I mean, if Longshot could have a mini, Monica Rambeau. Yeah, she had was, a, I know she had a one-shot. Yeah. But it also didn't help. And actually, I didn't even think about it until we were talking. She is actually the most success. She is actually a type of Avengers character. I didn't. Th- I don't. I didn't even put her in that category. But she is a specific type of Avengers character. She's the writer. You know, the creator specific. I like this character. I'm creating them. I'm going to use them. Character. She yeah. is the equivalent to Mantis, uh, Silverclaw. Mm-hmm. There's a couple others. I'm trying to remember right now. Living Lightning. But like each. Like, a different creator comes on, and they basically create this character to add in as the new character of the Avengers. Right. And 99% of the time, they kind of just fade away into obscurity. I mean, yeah. she's actually yeah. done the best out of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Silverclaw yeah. doesn't have a miniseries right now. I mean, with maybe the exception of the Vision. Um, but, you know... I think he's such a mainstay, he doesn't really even count by this point. But yeah, as far as characters that fade in and out of the Avengers, definitely, for sure. Yeah, but like Vision, yeah, Vision would have, if, like, I mean, I don't even put Vision in that category, because Vision stayed past the original creator. Like, they just kept using him. Everyone who's there kept using him. But, like, who else really used Mantis in the Avengers besides Inglehart? Exactly. You know, yeah. no one else uses Silverclaw besides, you know, Kirk Busiak in the Avengers. But right. Monica has been brought back... You know, a few, not as much as the Vision did. Obviously, I guess you could say he's the most successful. But right. and that's possibly also part of the problem for her getting a miniseries. Not just not discounting or disbelieving anything you said. Reasons why, mm-hmm. very true reasons. Although Shooter was also out of there shortly, within yeah. a couple years of this. But 
Okay. So was Stern. Yeah. He was now over at DC. He was writing about Power of the Atom, and I think he wasn't he writing Starman. Yeah, yeah, he wrote the Will Payton Starman. Yeah, Starman and Super. It's right because that's why they had that crossover with the Superman Christ of the Crimson Kryptonite. Yeah, I think he was writing the. I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. I think he took over action. I don't remember the eighties where he was at in the eighties. Yeah. But yeah, so if between everything you just said and the creator slash champion of the character is gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it totally. Yeah, it's like a double whack on her. Right. Plus, you know, after Stern left, the Avengers were just as far as creative teams were a hot mess until um, until Bob Harris came on as the writer for like four or five years. Because after that, it was like, uh, I forget. I think maybe Byrne came back and wrote it for a little bit. And then then he did some bad stuff with the team. (laughs) Yeah, he was. He was, I believe he was writing it around like Acts of Vengeance and stuff, at least briefly. Yeah, yeah he, he wrote West Coast long enough to mess up the vision in Scarlet Witch and then left West Coast and went to the East Coast title. And then the West Coast title just kind of spiraled down into Force Works eventually. <laughs> oh, okay. Here's where we're differing. I actually, well, the, the thing from the burn run I like from West Coast was issue 50, just because it brings back the original Human Torch. Oh, yeah. So yep. I did like that. But I did like Roy Thomas's run. At least okay. what I remember. I haven't read it since it came out, probably, but I, I was reading it more than a regular Avengers. So hmm. I like Living Lightning and Spider-Woman. I, I did like when Larry Hama was writing it for a little bit in the early, early 90s, like 91 or so, when, when like Rage was on the team. and That's when I started getting to Avengers was when he did, was writing it, when they brought Rage, introduced Rage. Yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, no, it, Avengers itself picked up with, I thought, in that time frame when Bob Harris took over writing it and started the whole, that the, the Bomber era, the Bomber era team. With the, uh, the alternate reality teams and, and all that and Proctor and. Yeah, I, yeah. I, thought, I always thought that was a lot of fun. I, I liked that a lot because it was right around that time that I got burned out on the X-Men after Claremont left. I'm like, well, I need something. And I hadn't mm-hmm. quite, I wasn't ready for DC yet. So I'm like, well, this is pretty fun. Except for, uh, I didn't like, um, what's it called? Uh, Operation Galactic Storm. I thought that was that, that was a bump in the road, in, in, in my opinion. Yeah, well, it's all our own opinions. So, I mean, I enjoyed it, but again, a lot of these things I haven't read since they came out, so I'm like 16, so right. God knows what I'll think of things now, because, well, taste can change, and I don't want to think about how many years. I mean, it's no Cap Wolf, but what is? So. Uh, <laughs> I was buying those when uh, they came I, out. I was I buying Cap. I submit to you that if Cap Wolf had had a better artist, that would have been a really fun story, but the art is so bad that it's hard to read. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I dropped Cap after that. So yeah, for sure, that's that's where I gave up. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I no, the, the Mark Wade came back or came. My on. favorite thing about Cap in those issues was a lot of times the backup stories because I thought he did really good at making the villains seem like people. Yeah, people who have did very bad things oh, yeah. or had very bad ideologies, even, but they seemed like real. Yeah. Yeah, like when I think when Ron Lim was was drawing Cap in the early '90s, it was a lot of fun. And even though the stories were pretty similar, but after Lim leaves, I think the Cap book really really suffered. But I digress. <laughs> um, That's okay. I do. Obviously, I do it too. So I love this suit of armor 
that Steve Bannon scrawl puts himself into. Where he, it I, I looks, just had that page up. It's great. I love it. It's so bizarre. Yeah. Like the front of it with the chess piece open is really doofy. It looks like something out of the 50s. But then once you get this cut panel of him as this goo that's filling out the inside of the armor with just a, with your stereotypical scrawl head with a literal like twirly mustache. I, th- I think it's funny that he's got a mustache. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing a scrawl of facial hair before. And it's not like a thick one. It's kind of like a 30s, th- like something yeah. you would see like a Clark Gable type character or William yeah. Powell. Or, or it, like it's, it's bordering on a Snidely whiplash. I, like you almost have to think that he, in trading with the 30s people, he's watched a few of the movies. Exactly. Exactly. Because, I mean, that's how they snuck on there, by pretending to be them, the 30s scrolls, And, yeah, and you know, because they trade with them. So you have to wonder if, like, they've left him a few movies. He's like, okay. I was like, I'm bored. I'll watch this one. Yeah. He's like, I like that look. That was really neat. I'm like, when I first saw it, because I'm going panel by panel on, on my phone, and I'm like, oh, that looks stupid. But then one's like, wait a minute, what's he doing with his arms? Oh, whoa, he, he turned himself into slime. That's really yeah. cool. That's really, I, I really enjoyed that a lot. Um, and it makes the ending of the story more horrific. Yeah, exactly. For him, I mean, because it's one thing to be su- like the guy stuck as Bogart. Right. I mean, he might think it's bizarre considering what he normally looks like, but he chose to be like that anyway, for the most part. But yeah. to be trapped like that, it's like, oh, God, like his liquid goo inside of a suit of armor is intense. Um, so I, I I'll be perfectly honest. I've only read like a small handful of the burn issues of fantastic four. I think I had the one where, where, uh, Attilan gets sent to the moon. Um, and that's about it. Was burn still on fantastic four at this time in 85? Mm, possibly. Yeah. I do not remember off the top of my head. I'm not, I I've read some of his, I probably read a bit more than you have from what you said, but not a lot. Yeah. Um, I think I think most of the Fantastic Four I read is actually the, the Falco era, where things all spiky and Ms. Marvel two has been turned into Ms. Thing and and uh, yeah, which is not a great run, but I read a lot of it as a kid. Um, but yeah, me, I kind of yeah. started reading FF during Simonson's run, mm-hmm. so I had a few burn back issues, but not a lot of them. Yeah, and like I think I've gone through on Marvel Unlimited and read like the important ones, like the Trial of Reed Richards and stuff like that. But um, I haven't read a lot. Um, so, so like, like you said, you know, we both like the '90s Superman, where he where he has long hair and it's not intended to be a mullet. But some artists, no, draw, it's Jackson Geis would often draw it as a mullet. Sometimes. Um, uh, Stuart Immerman wouldn't draw the long hair on purpose, but his anchor, Jose Marzon, would they would like, hey, you've got to put the long hair, so Marzon would would doodle in the hair, as, you know, so he looked like this long inky mullet. But Sue Storm, or Sue Richards, has a mullet in this issue. That, and I remember that from the burn run where she had a mullet, and it's really funny. <laughs> okay, so I just looked that up real quick. About the same time as this issue came out was Fantastic Four 283. So mm-hmm. he's still on it, but he's not long. Okay. Because yeah. I know he's off in like the early 290s. Okay, because he had to leave to go do, you know, the Superman reboot. You'll have that and also hating, the per- you know, Mr. Shooter. 
Well, yeah. Um, I mean, if if I'm remembering, and I'm pretty sure this is not just an apocryphal story, I believe I remember somewhere that it's actually been confirmed. He had a party. I forget the reason of the party was Shooter leaving or just, you know, kicked out of Marvel, or he just had a party at that time, but they burned Shooter in effigy. Wow. I'm, so, or he did at least. So, yeah, I mean, think about it. Shooter leaves, John Byrne takes over writing Starbrand and drawing it. And he does The Pit, if you remember that. Yeah, I, I remember. Oh. <laughs> and I, where is Jim Shooter from? <laughs> but was, was it Shooter? Um, from Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. And then J.R. Also, John Romita Jr. did uh, Starbrand, didn't he? I know he was at, part, at least in the beginning. I'm not sure if Berm was writing and drawing it when he did it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, because I think I had like a couple issues with Starbrand, and I think J.R. J.R. was on it at that time, but I didn't get into it until late, and I did not stay in it very long. <laughs> I think I had like issue two when I was a kid. Like it was just like one of those random comics you had. Mm-hmm. But also yeah. think about if you ever read, if you read Legends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That one guy that Green, that Guy Gardner fights early on, that like blows his own foot off and everything. Uh huh. If oh, you yeah. look at it enough, that's Jim Shooter. That's funny. Which is ironic because in Secret Wars two, um, Shooter created a Steve Gerber stand-in that he yep. ends up killing or something. All right. So I looked it up real quick. Star Brand number one, writer James Shooter, penciler John Romita Jr. And at least as of 14, writer, art, writer, penciler, John Byrne. Okay. Hmm. Yep. I was, I was definitely off the book by then. I, I think I had like issue three and then issue like six. And I'm like, meh. Yeah, I had like issue two or three and like maybe one. Or, like I had like four or five random universe issues that yeah. I just kind of had. I don't even know how. I, I never bought them. They just kind of were there. Yeah, my my best friend was really in the DP seven, and like you gotta read this. I'm like, well, I'll read yours, but I'm not buying that, man. <laughs> I more like the new universe stuff for when they brought it back in like Quasar and yeah, made that, an alternate universe. Yeah, that was cool, and I like what um what Hickman did with Starbrand and um, Nightmask in his yeah. Avengers. That was really cool. I like I like analogs to the new universe, but I don't really want to live there. Um. But yeah, Sue Storm's mullet, or Sue Rich, I keep calling her Sue Storm. Sue Richard's mullet is uh, a thing of epic proportion and badness. I'm, I'm yeah. not a, that, that's like a that's like a runaway rat tail. I mean, yeah, there's no doubt that is a mullet. It is a hundred percent short on top and long on bottom. Yeah, and it's like like almost like a, it's almost a high end tight with a mullet. I mean, <laughs> it's like you. I saw this meme where it's a little kid with a with a high and tight mullet, and it said this kid was born with a suspended driver's license. <laughs> That's what that reminds me of. But yeah, I like when Monica is going through this the super omni mega bomb, whatever it's called, and you get this these different light strobe effects, like where she goes from a beam of light to a pulse of light or a pulse of radiation or something, and then you know she's kind of tripping through this dimension of, of white backgrounds and geometric shapes. I thought that was really cool. And that is cool. And then like when they show her, like the, it's pulling her apart of it and she's still a light form, but it's all kind of, it looks like, it looks like looking at the, uh, when you're editing, editing a podcast, actually <laughs> like the sound, it looks like she's being quiet at one point and then she's yelling. Oh, that's cool. I don't know. I never edit. So 
I'll just take oh, your word okay. for it. <laughs> <laughs> I just burp and say, excuse me. Like, oh, excuse me. I just ate lunch. Um, um, I also like the page where the, the energy wave from the bomb is radiating out from the asteroid, and you have these little cut panels of all the different superheroes' heads. I thought that was neat. Uh, I like oh, a, like the spirograph art. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like a, I like a good use of negative space on a page and a panel. I thought that was cool. Um, yeah, because as long as they don't overdo it, it, it definitely attracts your attention on that that page because it's so different than the others. Mm-hmm. I always like the way Byrne draws Captain America's mask wings because it's such a hard thing to get right. And I talked about this when I was doing the Sentinel of Liberty podcast. I was like, I like the way they do them now where they just kind of barely protrude. But back in the 80s, sometimes they would just stick out sideways. It was like, like Batman's ears. Yeah, like that's not right. Um, but, you know, I like that he draws them actually sweeping backwards. That's that's pretty good. Yeah, um, even on that page you're just talking about, you can still see a little bit of the feathering to them, to the back. Yeah. yeah. So it's not just like white ears, like bunny ears, but it's actually yeah. wings. Yeah. And uh, I thought the reveal of where when Philippe finally takes off his, his mask or when he gets turned back into a, his scrawl shape, he's the he's the most handsome of all scrawls with nice hair. And uh, yeah, I thought that was pretty. He's beautiful. got like yeah, he's like a humanoid appearance. Yeah, he's he's, he's less. He's the, I just. Oh, wow. He's like the anti. He's like the opposite Thanos. Yeah. Because yep. Thanos is like has a bit of is like an eternal with a bit of a throwback to the deviant gene. And I mean, from what I remember them establishing at one point on the Skrulls planet, basically they were the deviants. They just they at some point in the prehistory or history got rid of, you know, killed off the eternal slash, you know, baseline humans from their planet. So it was just the planet of deviants. Right. That You know, that's why when Thanos is scroll, you know, has that scroll looking chin. Even though mm-hmm. it says deviant throwback, he's almost like the opposite. He's like a human throw, you know. He's like a throwback to the other race. Yeah, to the um, to the Eternals. Well, Eternals are the the base. The, I guess if oh, you're no. going by the same principle, if the if the Celestials did the same thing, where like they came to Earth and like, okay, we have these proto humans, we're gonna experiment on these and make them deviants. These are gonna be Eternals, and you guys stay as you are and let's see what happens. Gotcha. And he's like he's their baseline human or whatever it would have been on the Skrull planet had they lived. Right. So I have some thoughts about the speech that Cap gives to Philippe here at the end. And I'm not going to read it verbatim, but it basically comes across his pep talk is like, well, I'm from a little place called America. In America, we've got a little thing called freedom and in the in Ronald Reagan's 1985, we've achieved total freedom and peace. And I had to roll. I rolled my eyes so hard. I think my neighbors could hear it. <laughs> so, uh, on my show, I do tend to lean into politics heavily to the left, and I have a whole little segment of the show about it. You know, I know you know what I'm, I'm telling you. What? I yeah. never noticed. Just a little. And I don't blame Roger Stern for this speech because I like Roger Stern. And if I like a writer and he does something I don't like, I'll blame it on the editor. So I'm going to blame this on Jim Shooter because I don't like Jim Shooter. And I'm also, I'm also going to blame it on the Comics Code Authority because you weren't really allowed to say or do anything that criticized America under the Comics Code Authority. But, man, this speech in, in Ronald Reagan's America where gay people were openly persecuted – 
and people of color, you know, were were not where they wanted to be with their rights, and women were being openly sexually harassed in the workplace, and we were, you know, trading, you know, we were building militaries in other parts of war torn countries to kind of build up our means for Captain America to come say and say, we've achieved total peace and freedom blows my mind. Like when you're writing Captain America or even Superman at some point, you want to lean to like your musical analog should be kind of mid eighties, John Cougar melon camp like around the scarecrow album. This is full on Lee Greenwood. <laughs> I do not like this speech. If you were, now, Stone, if you're in Stone Mountain, Georgia, for those listeners who live in Georgia, at the Laser Light Show in the early 90s, this is where I'm proud to be an American would start playing as they illuminate the Confederate soldiers on the side of the mountain. Uh, sorry, I know uh, that your reference, but I lived through it. I can understand that. And I can understand where you're coming from this, and I, I can agree with a lot of it. Although I am thinking also, in story-wise, Cap could potentially be saying to you on the side, yes, you're right. But I'm not going to tell him that stuff. Right. <laughs> it's like, in comparison to like one or the other, trying to do this is better. So I'm going to at least push them to try. Right. Because it's better than telling them, oh, it still kind of sucks. Right. Yeah, well, why the hell would I do it? Uh, you, you make an excellent point, sir. Yeah. And he, he at least does start the speech with, we have an ideal. Of, you know, this is what we would like to be. But he makes yeah. it sound like we've achieved the ideal. No, yeah, it's like yeah, it does come across as like, and mission done. Right. And no, like you said, all those other group of people are there, like in the background, waving Papa, going, "What? Yeah, uh-huh. are you sure? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it." Yeah, sorry, I, I reread. I don't think the, we're there yet. I reread this early this morning, and I'm like, I don't Wait. think we're there yet now. <laughs> no, <laughs> far from it. We're I think, far, yeah, we're better than we used to be. I think. In some ways, but um, no. <laughs> and that, that's my issue with John Burns' uh, Man of Steel, is that he leans so heavily into wanting to make Superman an American citizen and um, has Superman come across as the, like a right-leaning centrist almost. So uh, that's why. It's almost sometimes like he was trying to write like the Superman that would become Dark Knight Returns Superman. Right. I mean, it. He was writing for the. He was writing for 1986, 1987. I mean, that's where we. That's where the cultural zeitgeist was at the time. So I get it. I just don't like it. But the arts. No, I understood. I mean, hopefully things of people change. Oh yeah. As you know, they might know more things and learn more things and grow with things. I mean, I'm not saying I would never say the person's perfect. I'm, well, I'm not going to say any people are perfect. Right. But I mean, you could look at some of the stuff Stan Lee wrote in the okay. 40s. But then you look at some of the stuff he's saying in like, you know, in Fantastic Four when he's writing that, and it's like he's you know, going against some of that other stuff. Right. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like hopefully, you know, you've learned a little bit. And right. also, like you said, that's you know, the Zeitgeist and you're writing you're writing in the time frame you're in, not the time frame that people are reading forty years later. Yeah, for sure. I mean and if I'd read I, I did not read Man of Steel when it came out. The only Superman issues I had in the early eighties were a couple issues of action comics and then one part of the exile storyline. But if I'd read Men of Steel in 1987, when I was like 12 years old, I would have loved it. You know? So I, I totally, I, I totally get it. You know, you write for what your audience is probably going to like at the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
I kind of was hoping, almost hope someone would be like, you know, in the background, like She-Hulk's there, Captain Marvel's there, like, Captain Marvel's there, like, Cap, really? Yeah, exactly. That would have been a nice little touch. Cap, Cap, I I have a dissenting opinion there, slightly. Yeah, for sure. Monica, Monica, let's just, let's just get him on at least a good path. Yeah. Exactly. Which, this whole story of the scrolls was interesting, because this is like one of the first times, like, the scrolls were really not used as just evil bad guy aliens. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It does give them a little more depth and complexity, and there's there's nuance to their to their ideology. They're not just we're going to conquer to conquer. Yeah, they're and, not all mustache twirling here. Yeah, and you know, and then the end, you know, you you see that Philippe was in the mask and he was an outlaw because he was the only, you know, prominent scrawl citizen who wanted peace and, you know, maybe that'll change now. And now that we're all can't shape change and be what we want to project and what we'd like to be, we have to deal with who we are and, and so forth and so on. Yeah. Although it does must suck for the scroll that's stuck in like a machine form. Yeah. It looks like a lamp. And then you got like, you got ones that are like big trolls or something on on some kind of like medieval alien planet. And you got the one lady who's stuck as a as a lounge singer at the casino. Yeah, but at least they you know, at least they have some kind of forms. It's another thing to be stuck as a lamp. Like, what happens if they change the bulb? I know, right? It's like ah, I, I, I it's it it bleeding. Ah, oh my god, they just ripped my arm off. Right. <laughs> Very funny. But, I mean, really interesting issue. It wasn't what – I haven't read this in forever, so it wasn't what I was expecting. I'd completely forgotten about, like, Humphrey Bogart scrawl and, and all these other things. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, God. I, that was so much fun. I love it that. Was, it is a really fun issue. Yeah, this is a bomb. The Avengers, they were out in space for several issues here, and this was, I think, the most fun. Yeah, for sure. Granted, a couple of the other issues were Secret War two crossovers. Mm, oh yeah, yeah. Where uh, what's his name just kind of shows up. Yeah, yeah. He had the cost. That's when he put his costume on. He had like the giant shoulder pads that looked like speakers uh-huh. or yep. air conditioners. <laughs> it's really funny. It looks like he got it in. Um, it reminds me of the costume that the people from the antimatter universe wore in their early eighty early eighties Green Lantern. <laughs> oh the weaponers or whatever um there was like these the, like the weaponers were like the lower echelon and then there was these higher ranking enforcers and uh they were really like kind of like they they were of the same race as the weaponers but they were buff and they wore like a lot less clothing and they had these big strappy things that went up over their shoulders like that oh i love it you know it's gil Kane stuff I believe. Nice. Yep. Well, looks like we're at the end of the issue. So anything else you want to say about this before we head off? Um, no, I think I, I think I've ranted long enough about this issue and, and, and stood high enough on my soapbox. That's fine. That's why I provide <laughs> the soapbox so you can get on there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, before we head, before you leave, if people want to hear more soapboxing from you okay. or, and, or want to hear you talk about Superman, and Supergirl, and Superwoman, and New Superman, and other characters with the word super in it? Yes, they can hear 
They can hear me talk about the Superman family of titles and hear me get on my soapbox on Truth, Justice, and Hope, a Superman podcast. I talk about at least two issues of a Superman book in in episodes starting with 2015's Convergence, where the pre-Flashpoint Superman and Lois Lane come to the post-Flashpoint, i.e. New 52 universe, and continue on from there. I'm currently up to the B, like the first quarter of 2017. I'm about to get into Superman Reborn. Um, and I also have a segment of the show called the, My Thoughts from the Fortress of Solitude, where I talk about ethics and politics and other things like that from the perspective of a Superman fan. And it's yeah, it's at anchor.com slash true justin hope. It's wherever you get your podcasts. Um, there's a Facebook page. I'm on Instagram at about truth, justice, and hope. But I do the majority of my shenanigans on Twitter at about Superman. And there will be a link to it in the show notes, people. So you could be lazy and just scroll down and click. That that works too. <laughs> I like to make it easy. Yay. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you. And hold on, people. And Ren and I will be back talking about some quasar. Afternoon, everybody. Ryan. How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure, gotta give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. Quasar number two, Destiny Amidst the Ruins. Writer, Mark Rumwald. Pencils, Paul Ryan. Inker, Danny Bonatti. Colors, Paul Beckon. Letters, Janice Chang. Cover art, Paul Ryan, Danny Bonatti, and George Rousseau. Editor, Howard Mackey. Cover dated November 1989. On sale date, July 11th, 1989, with a cover price of $1. You can find this reprinted in Die Spine number 202, a German reprint. Grandius Heroes Marvel number 37, a Brazilian reprint. Quasar Classic Volume 1, a 2012 trade paperback. And digitally on Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited and other digital comic sites. Quasar is flying under his own power to Uranus. It has taken him several years so far, and he still has a few weeks to go. Keeping himself mostly unconscious to reserve his oxygen supply, he dreams of his origin and earlier superhero ventures. Until he and his father decide it would be a good idea to learn the origins of the alien energy bands he uses. On Uranus, he finds the colony that Marvel Boy, who was the original wearer of the bands, said he got them from, but is severely damaged and everyone inside is dead. Realizing he's not going to get any answers after having spent several years to get there, and needing several more to get back, he falls into a bout of depression and is greeted by Death Urge. Death Urge reveals he was the cause of the Uranians' death because they lost the will to live, and now he was here to kill Quasar too. 
The fight is going very bad for Quasar, until he disappears and finds himself in subspace with Eon. Eon tells Quasar that he is responsible for choosing a cosmic champion when one is required, and Quasar is to be the current champion. Once he agrees to be Eon's champion, Quasar's mind is open to the total mastery over the quantum bands, and upon his return to Uranus, he is able to defeat Deathurge. Eon then accompanies Quasar back to Earth after showing him how to quantum jump and shortening the trip from several years to 15 seconds. And now we are back for our final issue of our Wilderness Years Saga. 15 episodes, and now we are done, and we got a whole bunch of issues covered. And we are talking Quasar number two, and we got Ren back this time to help us wrap up this whole thing. How you doing, Ren? What's up? I'm, I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. I've had fun doing these things, but I'm excited to get back to the actual Adam and Thanos stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but... That also would have been counted, could have been said by anybody who was interested in Adam and Thanos and was reading comics since 1977. Because <laughs> they've been dead. A lot, a lot of stuff happened in between. Yeah. So the nice thing about this is just kind of let us know where things were, you know, where the Soul Gems were. Characters like Eon, who were involved in that saga originally with Captain Marvel. You know, plus we have the introduction of Thanos' grand, you know, quote unquote granddaughter, Nebula. Yeah, you know, now her daughter. Now his daughter. Okay. Is it is it like a change from like the movies, or is it just they just retconned it? Yeah, they just retconned it because of the movies. Oh, okay. And quite frankly, and I'm going to edit this part out because I haven't read, I haven't edited, I haven't recorded those issues yet. But I remember enjoy, being happy with that retcon because I always found Nebula kind of boring before. She was just kind of like random space pirate. No. <laughs> and. The, the version they've now done brought into the Marvel Universe that was from the movies is a lot more interesting. So yeah, yeah I am happy with that retcon because it it's a better character. Anyway, yep, we have our last one now. Quasar number two. To learn his cosmic destiny from Eon. Yeah, remember Eon from way back in the Captain Marvel issues? He's back. Quasar must first survive a deathly duel with Deathurge. 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 He looks like the evil version of uh, the Black Racer. Yeah, it kind of does, like with the cape and like his the, the ski thing. Exactly. <laughs> I've been a fan of like Eon's design. Like, uh, I remember I, I haven't read like the first part of this run, but I read the like the Cosmos and Collision. I always liked whenever he appeared. Yeah, no, Eon's design is pretty cool and freaky. Definitely a not definitely non-human. Yeah, like. And he first made his appearance in the Captain Marvel stuff. Yep. I think it's like 29. It's when Captain Marvel goes from silver hair to blonde. Oh. So what the change he does to Quasar in here is actually appropriate because he did that to Captain Marvel too. He might, he minorly changed his costume and, you know, dyed his hair. <laughs> hey, Eon likes blondes. Yeah. You know, who are we to judge? <laughs> but anyway, we'll start off. We might as well just run through the issue real quick. So yeah, Quasar's flying through space. I do like the attention to um, actual science here a bit. And uh, the yeah. fact is that Quasar can't just fly to the Uranus, which they might have done in the 40s. He actually had to like go in hi- like hibernation for like several years. Yeah, that that 
I, I appreciated that too. Um, I don't know if you know this. I have um, I'm I have a bachelor's in astronomy, so you know, I I read this issue and I I appreciated all the little details they put in. Yeah, it's one thing I do remember from reading this book early on. They did at least for like the first several issues in the letter column. They always had some kind of like science, you know, information pertaining to space or particularly what they're something that had to do with the issue. So like they try to actually put like the real science in as much as possible. Yeah. Especially like when he when he gets to Uranus, like I, I really appreciated like the way they, it's very ac- <coughs> well, as accurate as you could be in this kind of book, but yeah, I mean they're not going to be fully accurate because you know the guys flying with quantum bands through space. Yeah, yeah. So it's as accurate as it could be. Like it's, I'm surprised by that. Um, this is by um, of course uh, Mark Grunwald, the excellent writer from. Marvel writer from the 80s. Uh, his most famous work was Squadron Supreme. Yep, and also a couple of his characters have just had a, uh, big roles in some Disney Plus shows this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, he created uh, John Walker. He created... Uh, Lamar. Lamar. He created the Flag Smashers, or technically the Flag Smasher, which... Yeah, sorry, and, yeah, they converted that a little bit, but yeah, that's his creation still. Like, so... Huge writer, no, you know, Captain America, Squadron Supreme. This is like a sort of underrated series. You probably know this already. Um, he when he died, like he had his ashes mixed in with the ink for the first trade printing of uh, Squadron Supreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the only ones who done anything like that was Kiss did that for their uh, yeah, Marvel yeah the, one shot. Yeah. They put their blood in there. That confuses me, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well, it was a gimmick. For Kiss, it was a gimmick. And the artist here is um, Paul Ryan. I believe he did Doctor Strange in the 70s. I think so. I know he did Fantastic Four later on when Tom DeFalco was writing it. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Um, and apparently also, according to the letter column this issue, uh, Mark Wormwell was the and Paul Ryan were the only creative team to work on a new universe title from beginning to end. Oh. They did DP7, and they did that the whole way through. And in fact, at some point later on in the Quasar series, he actually will visit the new universe, and they'll actually use some of the DP7 characters again. Huh. No, one thing about Mark Rumwald, he was always a fan of, instead of, you know, if Marvel Universe has so many of these minor characters around, if you need a character, instead of just making a brand new one just to use for an issue, why not bring somebody back and do something with them? Yeah, yeah. He was always very good at that. Like, he he was always very into, like, continuity. Like, you know, he loved bringing in, like, these various characters. He liked tying them in in some way. Yes. In fact, and this is something we mentioned a while back on one of our episodes when we talk about uh, Eternal Secrets of the Moral Universe, which reprinted all the uh, backup what-if stories that kind of set up the retcon that the uh, the Titans are actually Eternals and therefore made Thanos an Eternal. He was one of the people who worked on that. Hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, basically tying in Kirby's Eternals work into the Marvel Universe and how it fit. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And like, I said, like you said, it makes sense for someone like Grimwald to do that because that was his thing. But yeah, so Quasar's flying through and has a little... Of course, what do you do when you're, fly, when you're kind of flying and you're in high, through space for years and you are uh, in kind of some kind of suspended animation? You have flashbacks to your past so the people know who you are and what you did. 
very uh, science fiction. Well, also helps for a character that really probably most people hadn't even heard of when he got his yeah. own series. So he was a shield agent and he worked as a guard in this one project using the, where they were testing out those quantum bands they had. The guy died. Project was attacked. He put them on to kind of defend and turned out he didn't die. And then he joined shield super soldier program, fought the Hulk, helped out cap. There's his participation in the project Pegasus saga, which is a story that runs through several issues of Marvel two and one, which is pretty cool. Gets taken over by the serpent crown. And decides he's not sure what to do with himself, so he decides to go to Uranus to find out the origin of these bands. And that also explains why the character had not been seen in Marvel for a couple years. Besides just no one was using him. (laughs) But it's nice. They have a it's nice when they find an in-universe reason why these characters vanish. Yeah. I like that they sort of established this character immediately like they don't like they sort of give like a detail about what his past is because you know i assume like a lot of the readers probably didn't know who this was or yeah in fact if anyone's reading the issue if you go to the letter column since obviously this issue two there's no letters yet they have a little bit of a mark runwell does a little writing down of why he wanted to do the series and he even puts in for you in chronological order quasar's previous appearances so if you were interested, you could know exactly where to check. There's only like a dozen or so issues. Oh, yeah, I see it right here. It's like Vaughn's first appearance in Marvel 2 and 1 back in 1979. Yeah. Yeah, some Marvel 2. Oh, uh, oh here it is. Uh, yeah, Quasar number 1, Captain Cause, America. 17. Yeah, because this Quasar number 1 does the origin, tells his origin. Technically, that's the first one, even though it came out last. Oh, he was... Okay, that's when I was... Forgetting something, we were talking earlier, like, uh, I had first seen um, the Quasar costume in uh, Project Pegasus, in a Project Project Pegasus trade I had seen. Mm -hmm. That's because, like, I I remember the costume because he was called Marvel Boy in that, I think. Ah, he might have been, I forget if either that means it was the other character named Marvel Boy or if he actually was using that name originally. I think he might have been using that name originally. Yeah, I think so. I get, yeah, that segues well into like what I was going to say. Like, I I knew, like I had read the later issues of this, like uh, and in the trade, the Cosmos and Collision trade that collects uh, issues 10 to 25. Mm. Um. So I read that, and then I read the Project Pegasus, and then it sort of kind of introduces this character, but the way he's shown there was, he was a lot, like, he was a lot different from, like, the Wendell Vaughn version, which is the one here. Okay, I'm trying to remember that, but yeah. But uh, that Cosmos and Collision story, I did like that. That was good. That was really good, yeah. Plus, if it's 10 to 25, that means it also has the uh, Barry Allen issue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the race. Yeah, it does. It does. I, yeah, I remember did. that. Yeah, I thought, oh, this is like this. Oh. <laughs> yeah, the winner of the race is basically Barry Allen, since at the time he was dead from crisis. I, I did read something once, like apparently Mark Grunwald considered himself more of a DC person. Well, but, that explains why he did Squ- uh, Squadron Supreme. I mean, it's basically the Justice League. Oh yeah, definitely. 
just mind controlled always, always mind controlled. <laughs> In fact, if you read the uh, JLA Avengers story by Busiak and Perez, when the team first meets, the two teams first meet, Hawkeye looks at him and goes, they're a bunch of Squadron Supreme knockoffs. Bet you anything they're mind controlled. And I read I read JLA Avengers like a very long time ago, but I remember that uh, statement specifically. Like, oh, that was a lot of fun. I wish they would reprint a lot of those stories. Yeah. But anyway, so Quasar finally has got to Uranus. And again, going with the real science, he's talking to his parent, his dad, who's, I think he's talking to his mom too, but I know it's definitely his dad at least. But I like the fact that they have like, there's like a three or four hour delay between between the their conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Like it's because like, you know, it's takes like a few seconds to go like for light to travel to space. So, and you know, transmission is done like through radio, which goes at the speed of light. So, yeah. I mean, too often when you have these interstellar communications, they happen instantaneously. And maybe you can go with the fact of, well, okay, these are advanced alien races, but since they're just using standard Earth technology of the time, which was like mid eighty, late 80s, there was going to be a delay. So I, I did kind of like that. It was a good part of the story. Kind of interesting to talk about the poles. And the thing with Uranus, it's like sort of, it's sort of like uh, tilted so much. It's basically like a wheel on an axis. So that's how it rotates. Is that the one that has like a weird, um, I know one of them, it's either Uranus or Neptune, has like a weird uh, orbit where it takes it like, it, at certain points, it goes out further than, like, even Pluto did. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, outer pla- the thing with, like, planets, um, they tend to be, they tend to have a very elliptical orbit, especially further out. So they come very close to the sun, and they go out, and they come back in. Okay. But they be cold. So, like it's described here, like, it's very... Yeah, he says not too many degrees above absolute zero. Yeah, so... It- so um, Uranus and Neptune, they're called them ice giants because uh, they're they're composed primarily of um, hydrogen compounds, which are completely frozen, and then water, and then like various um, um, you know ammonia and all kinds of like frozen elements. So, and then of course the spot where the giant alien city is. Yeah, yeah, that that that's <laughs> deep within it. There's a Arthur C. Clarke story or, or book, I forgot what, um, where there was like a theory like the core of Jupiter was a gigantic diamond because of all the pressure that was on it. Don't know if that's true, possible, but that's a kind of a cool it, idea at it, least. It probably is, and it was like from some paper. And mostly uh, the core is like, I think, metallic hydrogen, which is like this very, which only comes because of like the intense pressure at the core of, the, of uh, Jupiter. He found the colon, the Uranian colony, and of course it's smashed up because everyone it had previously been established they're dead. And he's flying through, and he just sees all yeah. the dead bodies, and he even sees uh, the head of one of the Cree sentries, which actually is a yeah. Uh, yeah, that's from actually that those that those what if backups, huh? They fight a Cree sentry there when they first show up. The Eternals first show up there. Yeah, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, the the blue that looks kind of like a Cree blue. Yeah, nope, that's a Cree Sentry. Huh. If you go back to reading those what if backups, or like I said, from the reprint in that Eternal Secrets from the Universe, when the group of Eternals who left Earth came to Uranus, 
they found already a sort of a Cree colony there with just a century and they defeated the century and defeating the century contacted the rest of the Cree to show up and the rest of the Cree killed most of them. Oh. And actually, according to that recon, they they brought back, the Cree were able to capture one of the bodies of one of the dead ones and brought it back. And that actually is what led them to doing the experiments that created the Inhumans. Oh. Oh, it's interesting. Like I said, Grunwald <laughs> was a master of ma- of mixing it all up together and making it, you know, making it to one thing. Yeah, yeah. You, you know how to, like, incorporate the uh, in and the continuity very well. Yeah, he brought that all those little disparate, desperate things together and made one whole, you know, yarn from it. So that was pretty cool. So, yeah, of course, he put this in. <laughs> Unified theory. Exactly. Quasar is now sitting now. Of course, Quasar realizes that there's something wrong with the communications. They can't even hear him back on Earth. What's he doing out there? He's wasted. You know, he spent years here and he has found nothing. And he's very depressed. And who shows up but Death Urge? Basically, if you've never seen Death Urge, and there will be a link in the show notes, so you want to click on that to see. But basically, he is just black ink in the shape of a person with white gloves, white boots, and a white cape. It's a, it's a good design. It's distinctive. Yeah. And he is basically the, uh, the spirit of... He works for Oblivion. He is like basically the spirit of self-destruction. You know, when people want to die, basically, that's what he's there for. And he, in fact, is responsible for killing everyone on the colony because they had lived so long and basically achieved everything they wanted to do. They were bored waiting to die. And he helped them. (laughs) And now he's here to help Quasar, whether he wants him to or not. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, he uh, goes through a bit about, like, the Earth connection, but... For a second, I thought I saw the name. I thought it was referring to uh, Vaughn's dad. It was like shown earlier, but it's uh, some guy named uh, Oh, um, Horace Gabshield. Yes, he is the father of the Marvel boy from the 50s. Oh, okay. And that's who the person is coming back from, you know, the, in a flashback, coming back to Earth from the uh, wearing like a Quasar like costume as Mar- the Marvel boy of the 50s. Yeah, okay, yeah, it's starting to come back to me, yeah. Yeah. But speaking of which, now, the next page, so after that, the next page, that next-to-last panel, I kind of, like, the way Deathridge is sitting there chatting with Quasar, his hand on his leg, you know, kind of like his leg on one of the rocks, I kind of like the fact that, like, I'm going to kill you, but we could still talk for five minutes beforehand. It's no problem. (laughs) You know? Call it an object lesson, like the Uranians... You seek oblivion. I have come to help you find it. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit, not as friendly maybe, but it reminds me a little bit of that scene from, if you ever seen Princess Bride? I haven't. Okay, well, if anyone else has seen it, uh, when the masked man first meets Inigo Montoya and, you know, he's been climbing up this big mountain, he's like, I know, we're going to fight, but first sit, rest, get, get, get your strength back, get the rocks out of your shoe, you know, relax for five minutes, and then, then we can, you know, try and kill each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it's very like you know it, it kind of reminds me of that here it's like I'm going to kill you in a few minutes but we can talk it's fine I, you know I'm not going to be a jerk you know I don't need to just kill you without you knowing why we can chat Definitely. first let's have a like would you like some tea 
But yeah, he's telling Quasar that basically you feel you've given up. You feel like it's a waste to go on. And I'm here to make sure that you don't. <laughs> and then he proceeds to kick Quasar's ass. <laughs> he, he like tries to kill him. Yeah, it's cool. He can he just go reach inside himself and pull objects out of himself, weapons. And so he just pulls an axe out of himself and tosses it at him. Yeah, Quasar he's... flies away. He pulls skis out of himself and skis after him. Like, like I said before, like the Black yeah. Racer. I wonder if that's where he got the, or like uh, Grunwald or Paul Ryan. I wonder if that's where they got the idea. That's possible. I would think so. I mean, how many flying skiing characters are there in comics? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's shooting him with the arrows and he's pulling on himself and they hit him. And now it's Quasar gets all covered with that inky blackness. And he's about to die, and then he vanishes. And he wakes up in a weird, as we find out, subdimension, facing with Eon. So basically doing the same thing, giving him the same spiel he gave to Captain Marvel years ago. I need someone to be the uh, protector of the universe. After he fills Quasar in on who he is, you know. I am the offspring of the eternity. I am the offspring of time. <laughs> Pretty impressive lineage. The of the life force. <laughs> Yeah, could you imagine being told this? You know, all of a sudden you wake up in some weird alien landscape and there's a giant like tree slash head floating ahead of, in front of you <laughs> and says, I am the offspring of eternity, the personification of the life force of the universe. I am the offspring of the cosmic axis around which the universe swirls and dances. It's like, okay. Is this a... It looks a lot like, is this a Jim Starlin character or was it? Yes. Okay, yeah, it looks look, it looks a lot like his, like a, that sort of specific, like, weird alien blend. Yeah, it does kind of have a mix of them. I mean, because if you look at him closely, you got like the weird eye on the one side, but the main face kind of looks like it's wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah, that is. I don't like this one. As an intermediary of the supreme forces of the universe, I've been given the responsibility to ensure that the conditions in the cosmos remain amenable to life. I kind of remember, have you ever read Damage Control? That is one thing I have not, I've read some Damage Control stuff, but not a lot. That's one of the blind spots I need to fill in eventually. One of the last issues, Eon, um, all the, all the like cosmic characters appear. So Eternity, Galactus, um, Eon, they all kind of come together to, I think they're trying to hire, uh, Damage control for something. I have to reread it. I, I might have sold it at one point. I don't remember. I have to get back. To, I have to read that at some point. The more I read of Joy McDuffie's stuff, the more I realize how great he was, how good he was. He was very good, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that or the more I watch Justice League. <laughs> I'm like, oh, good. Joy knows this one. Read. But um, so yeah, he tells, and this is actually one of the few times we actually get a bit of the history of the of the protected universe. I mean, before he made Captain Marvel hit the protector, but that was it. But here we actually have a panel of him telling Quasar, you know, about the fact that I'm here to, you know, I have to occasionally pick a champion for life to protect the universe. And we not only see Marvel, but we also see several of the other past champions, which is kind of cool because I don't think we really we don't really get too much into that. And yeah. I really, I want to see more of that fish head guy. Yeah, I want to see this like guy in on like the left side who's like green and he has like the like yeah. he looks like one of the aliens from Toy Story, like the 
Yeah, no, no. I was I was gonna say there were three I want to see more of. I want to see the fish head guy, the Shi'ar woman, and that big green guy, who's <laughs> kind of like it looks like he's not really wearing anything. So I'm like, I'm not sure if he's naked or like he kind of looks at me like some kind of like barbarian hero. I like that he's wearing like underpants. Like, yeah, like he kind of makes me think of like some kind of like you know Conan, like space Conan or something. I think. I think it's called like the Elon or something. There's an alien race. It was like an early issue of Fantastic Four called the Infant Terrible. Where like this little alien infant shows I, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Very early issue. It was like this. Yeah, there's like alien who like rampages and then it just kind of leaves. And because it turns out it's actually only like a child. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cosmic, cosmically powerful, but it's still only like, you know, five years old. So it's just behaving like a five-year-old. I'm scared and I want my mommy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's the same race as this one. Oh, huh. I mean, I think I, but it look, I think that's what it looked like. Green with that kind of face and like the little like, not really horns. Cause, yeah, you know, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, but yeah, that's, that, so this is kind of cool. I would love to see something that goes into the history of the Protectors of the Universe at some point. Let me get uh, the Thanos' cameo on this. Reason we're doing this. Yeah. The last entity to assume the mantle was Captain Marvel of the Cree. He was a good man and he acquitted it well of the task for which he was groomed. The neutralization of the star killer Thanos. But so, he's dead now. But he they're both dead now. Although one's gonna get over that pretty soon. Quasar is like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll be your new protector. And then he does he says, prepare for the metaphoric rite of passage, which took a little more longer for Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel had to like fight his uh, personal demons. And of course, since it's a comic, that meant he had to physically fight them. (laughs) (laughs) But the same thing happens, you know, he does, you know, not just an alteration to the costume, but also an alteration to like his appearance. So like with Marvell, he went from white hair to blonde. Quasar, because he had been flying through space for a couple of years, his hair was long, he had a beard, and now he's clean shaven and his hair's cut. Yeah, I, I like this new design better. I, I don't get like I'm guessing it's like a Marvel Boy thing, the crown at the middle, but a, yeah, yeah, uh, the little, the little like almost like an arrow symbol. Yeah, yeah, I like, I like the new design better, especially like the yeah the arrow design and then the belt looks a lot more interesting. Plus the cape, you know, it's not as tattered now. I mean, hopefully, I think it might have been clean too, which is looks cleaner too, which is good because I mean the guy's been wearing the same clothes for like five years. I mean, you can imagine, like, anyone who wears the same hoodie every day, you know, you know, wears the same hoodie every day for, like, a couple weeks, that thing needs to be cleaned. Imagine wearing the same whole clothes for, like, five years. It's got to stink. Yeah. But, and so, also, he's opened up Quasar's mind a bit more of how to use the bands better. And so, now he's sent back to fight Death Urge, and this time, he actually gets to have a fair fight, because now he can actually, he can actually use the bands against him. I like that Death Urge, like, he, he sees Eon, and then he, he gets more convinced to kill Quasar, like. Yeah. So this like, fleshling and your new emissary will make his demise all the sweeter. Yep, but nope, doesn't work, because now Quasar can actually affect him. And Death Urge is like, fine, I'm out. But tell you what, next time we meet, you are going to beg me to kill you, and I'm going to say no. <laughs> And in a cool way, it's not just a random villain, you know, taunt. 
if you continue, anyone that continues reading on the Quasar series up through 25 at least, that will happen. And it's pretty awesome. I was going to do like a reread of like the Cosmos and Collision collection I had. Yeah, it's, it's kind of making me want to reread the rest of the series. And so Quasar, take, Quasar takes Eon with him back to Earth because he's like, hey, if I'm, you know, if this whole new threat that you're saying you need me for is, you know, about trying to kill you, well, it's probably better if you're with me so I can protect you. It's going to take us a couple of years to get back to Earth. And he's like, ah, I know a shortcut. You can do what's called a quantum jump. <laughs> Basically, it's, you know, going through hyperspace. Yeah, so that's a, a scientific, con- or at least like a theoretical concept. There's something called an Alessumbre drive, I think it's how it's pronounced. Where you basically just like bend time and you basically like bend space time to like increase your distance or something. Yeah, and I know they further on the Quasar series they get more into that too. Whether it's scientifically how scientifically accurate it is, hmm, depends how much you know about that. Might work better for me than for you, maybe. You would know more about that than me. I might be like, all right, I'll take these words at face value. I like the final line. Man, oh man, is dad going to be surprised to see me back? And with a dinner guest, no less. Yeah. (laughs) And that was Quasar 2. So, I, you know, not only do we do this for the uh, Thanos appearance, but yeah, it also gives us another appearance. We know, you know, where Eon is. So this is where Eon's going to be for a little while up and through um, Infinity Gauntlet. He's going to be hanging out with Quasar. Yeah, I I really like this series. Um, I like more like the writing and the like, you know, the art and especially like all the cosmic stuff than I necessarily like uh, Quasar himself as a character. But I I really, I really like the series. I really like uh, the writing. Like if you see here, like it's very well uh, constructed the way it's written the way it like it's drawn yeah no no paul ryan definitely knows what he's doing he can definitely tell a story which is good he's not the flashy artist but he definitely tells a good story which is generally what you at least need i've heard very good things about his work i just i I see his artwork sometimes and like um you know uh issues but I i don't think i've ever read like a run of his work yeah, I don't remember how long he's on Quasar, so I can't say. Like I said, I'm astronomy major, and I did do some stuff with planetary science, so like the Uranus stuff is especially nice for me. Oh, good. Well, it worked out well then having you on this episode. Oh, and also in the letter column, by the way, um, besides telling us Quasar, you know, what issues you can find Quasar in before, it also tells us that Deathurge appeared before in Marvel 2 and 171 and 72, and Avengers 249 and 250. Oh, there's even a little bit of a, a little science facts about Uranus on the letter page as well. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah I was just looking through that. I don't mention the Axis thing. Like I, I, like I said, like Uranus is like, its axis is like very tilted so much. Like it basically is rotating like a, like a wheel. Hmm. Try to imagine Earth like that. So basically, like the North Pole isn't on the t- isn't technically on what we would call the top of the planet. It's more like, yeah, if it's tilted. It'd be more like on its side, almost like imagining the planet outside. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I get it. And then all, all of its uh, moons were named for uh, uh, characters in Midsummer's Night Dream because. Uh, oh the yeah. Guy, the the guy who um, discovered Uranus, like he 
wanted to like actually he originally named the moons after like uh I think he was like an Englishman and he named them all after um Henry after like the English king and his uh, various uh emissaries but then they decided to just rename them after Shakespeare characters. I, I didn't even catch that but now you say that that's right yeah Miranda, Ariel, Titania, Orberon. I didn't even put that together I'm looking at them but yeah, cool. That's my one of my favorite Shakespeare plays so that works. I'm I like that. It's time now to cover our feedback, and this time we are talking about feedback from last episode, number 168, Legacy Years with John Wilson. And the post about that episode on Facebook got likes and shares from Magazines and Monsters, Mirko Mackey, Joe Sedano, Dave Marchland, Jesse Starcher, Julie Warren, Chris Armstrong, Justin Cobble, Ruben McNeil, Luke Ed, Jeff Rossengreen, Alan Williams, Ray Ray Pod, Bill Bear, Pat Sampson, Paul Spataro, Clinton Robinson, Gene Hendricks, and Ruth Sutherland. On Twitter, the post got likes and retweets from Ghost Spider Groupies, Kaiser the Great, Into the Night, Max Apocalypse, WWDW RPG Podcast, David Finn, Viet Nguyen, The Cyburn Menace, Alan Sharp, Capes and Lunatics Podcast Network, Between the Pages Blog, Chris Lydon, Clifford Riley, JohnReadsComics.com, The Source Material Comics Podcast, The Daily Rios, Tim Price, the Podcrasher, and Ed Moore. We also got comments on that post. Uh, the WWDW RPG podcast, which is a Doctor Who role-playing game podcast, commented, said, enjoyed this one, which really took me way, way back. Too far back. Now I feel old. Because we were talking about Avengers 262 and 263 from 85. And... Yeah, I wasn't getting books then, but I wasn't. I started getting them not too long after that. So, yeah, makes me feel old too. And Kaiser the Great retweeted, retweeted the uh, post on Twitter with a comment: "It's got to be crazy hard to scuba with a shield because on the cover of two, Avengers two sixty three, the Avengers are all swimming underwater, and Cap has is swimming with his shield. Which, yeah, I mean, it's annoying enough to swim in clothes, let alone with a big flat shield." It's Cap. He can do pretty much anything. The post on the episode also got likes on our Tumblr page, so thank you, all the Stardust and EVP blog. Now, remember, you want to hear more from me? You can hear me pretty much every week on the L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D cast. You can find that on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed. Links in the show notes. And on that show, we talk about the late 80s, early 90s DC sci-fi series Legion. That is the one with the acronym in Braille Docs and Lobo, not Legion of Superheroes. And in fact, at this point, we are not talking about that series, Legion. We are talking about the follow-up series, Rebels. Nope, not the one from the 90s. The Re- we already finished that one. We are on to the Rebels from 2008. No, 2009, sorry, by Tony Bedard and Andy Clark. So go, li- go check it out. Also, I did another guest star over on the Magazines and Monsters feed. Link in the show notes again. On his Bronze Age of Horror podcast, uh, Billy and I were talking about Werewolf by Night number six and seven. So, link to that. You want to have some werewolf stuff? Go over there. You have comments. You want to like and share and just have your name said here, which is awesome. I love hearing my name said on other podcasts. Here's how you do it. Well, first of all, if you have any comments, send an email. Resurrectionspodcast at yahoo.com. Or, like and share the posts on the different social media. On Facebook, we have a page there. Just type in Adam Warlock or Thanos in the search box. We'll pop up. 
On Twitter, we're at AdamThanosPod, and on Tumblr, ResurrectionPodcast.tumblr.com. Finally, this show is part of The Collective. The Collective was started by a few like-minded podcasters who wanted to network in the most traditional sense. It has become a repository for ideas, crossovers, and potential guest appearances, and you are getting our promo for one of The Collective shows right now. Hey there, everyone. I'd like to tell you about the YouTube channel I Am Your Target Demographic. If you're a fan of comics, we have plenty that you'll enjoy over there, including a series called Heroes Like Us that explores comic characters of all sorts of different identities. And we even have a series that defines words that are used in nerd culture that you may not know what they mean. So you can check us out by heading to YouTube and searching I Am Your Target Demographic or look up IAYTD on any social media outlet. That was Quasar number two. So now we've kind of set the stage for the return of Adam and Thanos in within a year or so of this. So we know where everyone is and what's been happening to them. So before we before we end up, close up, yeah, let me try that again. Before we close out the episode, anything you want to tell people about where to find you or anything you want to recommend or um just tell well, people where to go? Me, <laughs> well, you can find me on Twitter normally, um Ren Chandler, capital R Ren underscore Chandler four on Twitter. Um mostly I I, I mostly um talk about stuff I'm reading or stuff that I'm uh watching at the moment um with any luck i'll be setting up a potential uh account from on medium to sort of go more in depth into my thoughts um that's where you could find me right now um right now i've been watching uh the modoc series which i really enjoyed and um a really good recommendation i have um barry windsor smith's uh, monsters it was a he wrote it as a Hulk story sometime in the mid-80s, and then Marvel, it's its a whole thing. Apparently, someone else stole that, stole the idea for it and used it in the Hulk, and so he just kind of took it with him. He's been developing it for like 20 years, and it's its really quite good. Oh, I, I did see you post that. I do want to get that. I do like some Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah, as always, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad to be here at the very last uh, point of this. Well, we're glad to have you back again. It's been fun. And thank you for doing this. And everyone, we'll be back next time with, well, something else. (laughs) Bye. Goodbye. Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page.